All right, everybody, and welcome. Thanks again for joining us for the second episode of this season of the Health Conscious Podcast, sponsored and produced by the Sloan Program and Health Administration here at Cornell University. Uh, we are so excited for this episode, taking it in a slightly different direction than one in the past. I'm Peyton Eisner, and I'm joined today not by Christian Tadji, but by uh, fellow Sloney, Anna Rutherford, who's a new first-year Sloney. Christian is on paternity leave, had a healthy baby boy last week, and so he and his wife are recovering and changing diapers at home, and so we'll wish them all the best. But Anna, welcome. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm good, Peyton. Thank you so much for having me today. And, you know, thinking of Christian and his new baby boy, Calvin, I believe the name is, um, and hoping that they're well at home. Yeah, absolutely. We are hoping that as well. Anna, this podcast guest has been um, a project you've been working on since you got into Cornell and something you're really passionate about. So why don't you introduce us to the guest and the topic today? Sure. When I first got here, I was really starting to learn more about food access and how it was a social determinant of health. Um, and so I reached out to a local Ithacan named Krista Nunez. She is the founder and president of the Learning Farm, um, which is a nonprofit organization um, or under the nonprofit organization Cuba International. Uh, she's an entrepreneur and she's a social food activist and she's really interested in sustainable agriculture and youth education. So she's going to come on this podcast today to talk a little bit more about that and about the grant that we worked on together, which is a $1,000 grant um, sponsored by the Cornell Rural Humanities Initiative and an award by the Andrew Mellon, W. Mellon Foundation. So we're going to use that grant and she's going to put 800 toward scholarships for her outdoor school program and she's going to put the other $200 toward the Ubuntu Library Project, which she'll talk more about. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to hear from her. So we will jump over now to speak with Krista. All right, everyone, we are here with Krista Nunez, who has some amazing things going on at her organization that are very timely in this time of COVID-19, along with social unrest and racial justice. Uh, Krista, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. So you have a program called The Learning Farm. And why don't we just start off by having you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, the Learning Farm is a tech-forward natural environment um, organization that helps students connect with the natural world and also supports STEAM and STEM learning and supports um, a really deep um, and wonderful connection for students who typically wouldn't have opportunity to enjoy a natural environment. Um, and it we have an outdoor school, we have summer programs, we have after school program, and we integrate a lot of environmental justice and food systems creation and um, climate smarts uh, and literacy and math and science into our, into our curriculum so that students who might be struggling in some areas find ways to, to catch up and, and really succeed in their education and also enjoy a lot of really great times in the outdoors. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic program. And I know you mentioned part of the Learning Farm is a program called the Outdoor School, which um, I know that you've recently started. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Sure, it was, uh, it was an interesting pivot that we, that we made 
during pandemic uh, crises, a lot of families who had experienced and whose children had experienced our summer program reached out and said, are you doing anything? I'm not comfortable with sending my kid back to school right now. I'm not comfortable with, you know, some of the, the classrooms not being actually um, ventilated properly. And as schools were sort of scrambling, trying to get things uh, settled, we thought, why not support families who need to, to have their kids enjoying the learning process through a really challenging time for the whole world. And so we said, why don't we just partner with, with the school district and support teachers in, um, in supporting their students so that screen time wasn't excessive and so that outdoor learning could occur and so everybody could feel good about learning and jump back in to a school environment without really having to jump back in into a typical brick and mortar school um, when folks weren't really comfortable with it. So it was a really um, sort of re a responsive uh, way for us to meet the needs in our locality uh, in a really um, challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very timely and uh, innovative solution to the uh, problems we definitely did not foresee coming. Um, you've recently been awarded a grant from the Cornell Rural Humanities Initiative, um, which is kind of sponsored by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Um, what sort of things are these, is this grant going to go towards helping you um, do with the outdoor school as you look to expand? Yeah, we're extremely grateful uh, for for the Rural Humanities Department as well as the Mellon Foundation. It's been um, a wonderful way to involve other organizations that are community and, and student supportive. And what we're going to do with those funds is uh, allow more students to come and enjoy what we have going on here um, and really get the support they need and provide um, childcare for parents who um, who need the extra support and the students who really need the extra, um, the lift in their educational supports. Um, so we're going to open it up to even more students who, um, who need free uh, education, but are not necessarily feeling great about going back into indoor classrooms at this point. Yeah, that's great to hear that that's going to be available to more and more students. Um, you've, you've got this great program coming. Um, and that you're working on. But I think one of the things that's unique about what you're trying to address is looking at food education, specifically sustainable food education um, with young children. What do you feel like needs to happen so that students f learn more about this topic? Do you feel like there needs to be a change in curriculum? There needs to be more hands-on learning so that future generations understand where their food comes from, how to grow food, the importance of food nutrition, um, and sustainability around that topic as well. Yeah, I, I feel like right now, um, and it's funny, I, a number of years ago, I read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, and it spoke about the idea of having 10,000 hours of practice um, being sort of the rule of thumb when you want to become an expert or a master at something. And I feel like this that concept needs to be applied to children. If we really want to make change in how we grow our food and how we allow our whole all communities to access food and be healthy um, and access to land as being a big part of that. We have to get people on land, experiencing land, understanding how to grow things, understanding how to work together and collaborate to create solutions together. 
and that needs to be happening as, as early as possible. And working with young people in the garden is really where it starts. Everything we do here starts in the garden and we make our way into the creek area. We talk about waterways and forest preservation. We talk about um, all sorts of things that really help develop the understanding of young people with regard to their environment, the climate and food. Um, and so the more we can do that and invest in our young people at an early age and really continue in a repetitive um, but interesting fashion so that there's a lot of exposure happening, that those are the, the ways that we're going to experience real change in those areas. Okay, so I'm going to start asking you some questions on Krista. It's really nice to talk to you again. I know that we work together on doing this grant and in proposing it to get the award for scholarships for your outdoor school, which is an amazing way for kids to have that access and connection to land and growing their own food, as long with, you know, all of the sustainable education around food culture. Um, but I know that we also talked a lot about other sorts of food related justice, justice issues and um, your other projects that you're working on under your nonprofit Cuba International, one of which being <laughs> is called the quarter acre to the people which i thought was a really interesting concept um correct me if i'm wrong but it's connecting local farmers to low-income families so that they have space to grow their own food um i just wanted to know like what motivated you to begin these programs to become an activist in this arena and to really confront justice with social change in our food system it's a great question. And yes, the program really focuses on the idea of land sharing and cooperation as the future of farming. So um, looking at both sides, I saw that there, there were families in our locality who had been impacted like my family was. Um, my family all came from Mississippi originally and had hundreds of acres of land that they had purchased. My great-great-grandfather had purchased with his cousins and uncles and aunts hundreds of acres of land around Macomb, Mississippi, and because of racial um, terror in the South, was forced off the land and had to flee to the North, came to Indiana um, and worked in steel for decades, um, but left a ton of land behind in Mississippi. And so talking to other folks around here, there's similar stories of, yeah, you know, my folks come from the South and we all came here to New York State and we got jobs in, in industrial industries. And my great grandfather worked and, and we bought this house and, um, you know, now we're New Yorkers. And, um, but now through, um, you know, land loss and other sort of predatory lending, other things happening, um, redlining, um, folks find themselves living in apartments and not having any connection to the land. And so I, um, but having this history of, you know, we had land at one point, even as, you know, ancestors being recently um, freed from enslavement, um, were able to obtain land and that really drastically changed. And sort of looking at the history of it was what made me realize that my people, African-Americans are, um, our farmers at heart. In Africa, we were farmers. It, here, we were ag workers forced, absolutely forced, but still on the land. And after that, wanted to remain on the land and grow our own food and take care of our communities. And so, you know, also talking to farmers who uh, have land and have had land for 
multiple generations in their family, but speaking to them, I hear a lot about burnout and I hear a lot about um, the desire to partner and the desire to do what's right and really want to, um, you know, acknowledge the, the history and the privilege of having inherited land and having had farming in the, in the family for, a, for, for generations and generations. And so, you know, you have folks who want to think differently about land um, on both sides of the coin and wanting to come together. And so, you know, the idea was, hey, you have land, you want to do some some reparations work around your land, you want help, you want to partner, you want to collaborate with other agriculture um, uh, workers and farmers who want to who want access to land and why don't we put you two together and think of ways to really sustainably steward and govern the land in ways that are really um, honor uh, the humanity of, of everyone involved and so you know succession planning and and cooperative and sharing um, is all um, part of the programming and training folks who haven't had any exposure but have, have a strong desire to have more um, more power and control of, of, of where their food comes from. Um, those are all things that we're that we're happy to be able to, to connect people on with the program. Yeah, it's 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 really incredible work that you're doing. Um, and I know that myself, like I'm just learning things. I'm doing the research on these subjects and learning things that I had no idea. But you'd think as people in a health profession going into healthcare administration that we would know a little bit more. Um, but I feel like agricultural discrimination and a lack of food education doesn't really come into it, even though nutrition is such a huge part and of healthcare in general. And understanding the historical context and the background of all those discriminatory laws like red not redlining and Jim Crow laws and how they've affected people who are now in poverty and food insecure and you know have higher rates of obesity or diabetes because of that um, I think it really overlaps with healthcare and, and we need to keep having that conversation um, I think one of the statistics that I found most appalling was that now uh, in today's <clears throat> In today's environment, close to 99% of farmland is owned and operated by white people. Um, yeah. And this is due to that history of discrimination. Um, so I think something really cool, and I, I know I talked to you a little bit about it before, is that a lot of food activists like yourself are now starting to replace the term food desert in this um, sustainable food movement with the term food apartheid because it more accurately depicts the impact of racism and social injustices on black people and how that's impacted their access to healthy food. Um, what's your opinion on how this term is being used? Do you agree with it? Do you think that it encompasses, you know, all those negative health consequences that comes from discrimination and how we think about food and food education and health in today's you know, environment? Yeah, I think that food desert definitely seems to indicate a natural occurring, naturally occurring uh, phenomenon when it's really a highly orchestrated um, systemic problem that, um, that is human created. And I think apartheid, um, you know, not to quibble about words, but apartheid is simply segregation. I think in this country, we're much more familiar with the word segregation. We experienced it. Apartheid really does refer to to segregation in South Africa, um, but 
you know, our experience of segregation in this country, um, my mother grew up, my father grew up in, in under segregated um, sections in the north. Um, my parents grew up in, in Gary, Indiana, and in East St. Louis, um, Indiana. And, uh, you know, the idea of folks being systemically excluded, being redlined, um, being forced and forcibly urbanized and forced to live in areas that, you know, instead of grocery stores, there's liquor stores. Um, instead of, um, you know, fresh food markets, there's, there's fast food restaurants. And so the idea of, it's, and it's simple, I think we can use big words to describe really sort of very simple matters, but when you have um, a group of powerful um, deciders and decision makers uh, in government and in industry, in banking, um, you deciding where people live based on on, on perceptions of race uh, in class and excluding them from areas that actually have resources, especially with regard to food. It's a simple matter of, you know, we could call it food access hoarding. We can call it a number of different things, but the, the matter is simple that when people are relegated to the worst areas, um, bad things happen. And like you said, health impacts follow. And so we have communities who really struggled with, you know, a number of things, cancers and diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol um, and the stressors of, of urban living uh, contributing to, to health as well. And then, you know, as we are recently seeing with COVID-19, with underlying factors, you are much more likely to seriously struggle with um, new viruses. And so uh, much more high mortality rate is experienced among people who uh, have not had a healthy diet and don't have access to areas where it's green or open or um, uh, access to healthy exercise um, as well. So I think we do need to think in terms of uh, land access, food access, equaling health access. And the more we can connect those dots, the more we can help create new systems. I could not agree with what you said more. Um, and I really want to thank you for telling your parts of your story and being vulnerable um, on this podcast, because, you know, the more that we can connect, the more empathetic and the more we can self-educate. I think that's all very important in, in promoting the conversation for the long term. Um, and I also think rounding it back to the beginning and um, the work that you're doing in outdoor school, school, working with children and, you know, getting them when they're young and teaching them about the the land and how to grow their own food and reconnecting them with the history um, is all really, really important work. And I think, you know, I'm hopefully this, this money. So the grant funding from the Cornell Rural Humanities Initiative, 800 of it is going to go to your outdoor school, but the last 200 of it, they were um, kind enough to give for another project that you're working on called the Ubuntu Library Project um, to support literacy around farming. So if you just wanna explain that one a little bit for us, that would be great. Sure, Ubuntu Library is a book club of sorts and it is uh, really focused on helping children who might be struggling with literacy or reading or wanting to read. 
um, who typically might not be seeing books or, or having exposure to books that really adequately reflect who they are and really um, show characters that look like them or have experiences like they've had experiences uh, in an uplifting way. And so we've selected, been really highly selective of the books, um, but we give over 200 children here locally um, in Ithaca a book a month. Uh, and the topics range from environmental stewardship to food sovereignty, to climate smarts, um, to, to gardening, um, and really strong stories about uh, human rights. Um, we really covered civil rights movement quite a bit, and we're really launching into some of the more recent movements. I enjoyed giving anti-racist baby to some of the, the preschoolers. Um, and um, the focus and the, the, the goal here is to help um, create what we call farmer scholars, folks who really know about land governance, who feel comfortable in the, the, the environment, the local environment uh, with regard to gardening space and uh, help them to really understand how it all works uh, and really lift the veil on how our food systems are created and really help them place themselves adequately um, in, in, in really squarely in, in the middle of, of their food. Um, and so uh, we're tracking students' um, literacy. We're looking at test scores. We're working with the school district on making sure that those books are going out every month and that students have really high quality reading materials in the home as a way to, to really boost um, their, their reading capabilities and skills. So um, I love this program because I was an avid reader growing up. I was an only child and was, you know, instead of bored, I always, I wasn't bored. I had a book all the time and I was always immersed in a new universe and I love science fiction and all kinds of different books and always had a book in my hand and it really did provide such an amazing universe um, to a kid who didn't grow up with a whole lot. And so I think you know, I see myself in a lot of these children, and I'm really grateful for this partnership and um, the fact that the Rural Humanities uh, Initiative really saw something in us that they wanted to support, and we're grateful. Yeah, we're certainly grateful as well. Um, one last question for you. You know, you've talked about a lot of important things today. What are some things that people can do to be involved either with you and the learning farm and the outdoor school, or what can people do in their own communities if they've heard what you've said and resonated with them and they want to make a difference and, and start working towards these initiatives that you've mentioned? Thank you for asking that. Yes, we, there's a number of different things. If you want to be involved, um, you can go to kubainternational.org and become a volunteer, we'd love it. It's khubainternational.org. Um, just contact, reach out, and um, there's ample opportunities to volunteer here at the farm, ample opportunities to donate, there's ample opportunities to, to partner with us uh, in the community that we support uh, as we continue to do more programming um, and hopefully you know, God willing, the future will be able to do more in-person work um, rather than exclusively virtually as we're doing um, in most cases with regard to volunteers. But um, so, and also, you know, w whether you decide to, to work with us and partner with us in particular, I think there's a number of ways if you are a person who owns land, um, you can begin to think about how that land should be shared um, and other people 
be able to partner and collaborate with you on developing land for the benefit of people who have typically been excluded from it or could really benefit from access to it. You know, think about, um, you know, volunteering from other, you know, with other organizations locally that do similar work, um, the Youth Farm Project, um, Groundswell um, Center for Local Food and Farming. Um, there's a number of different organizations that are really focused on helping this community come out of a really hard fight with regard to food access um, and land. Um, there's a local group called the Finger Lakes Land Access uh, reparations and reconciliation working group long name wonderful group of people really focused on helping the Gaikono people of the Finger Lakes the indigenous people um, come back to this area uh, that they were forced off of also working with groups of uh, various groups of color um, working with Southside Community Center and helping um, families of color be able to collaboratively um, work on land and so a lot of initiatives coming out of that group um, you know there's also a big part of that group uh, around um, community education and hopefully in the future we'll be doing some educational and author visits where folks will do a community read and learn about different topics um, yeah there's just a number of different ways that you can um, you know in in small or big ways um, really provide um, use your body as a as a as a benefit to the world uh, in this realm so I encourage you to you know think big think small think all the ways um, if you're good at cooking find a family that might need a meal um, you know there's a there's a number of different things you could be doing and just reach out if you need more guidance uh, another organization uh, called the Traditional Center for Indigenous uh, Culture and Healing uh, is an organization that really works on helping indigenous uh, groups to connect to land and rematriate the land and grow indigenous food for the benefit of the people, uh, as well as share the bounty with, with the community as well. And I'd like to thank everyone involved in this in this wonderful podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you and working with you on this grant. And I look forward to increased and in, in more partnership in this realm with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I know I'll definitely be working to educate myself. I'll probably spare some poor family from cooking. Um, I don't think I'd want to poison anybody, but um, for Read those- Read a book, educate yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. take that initiative uh, over over yeah. cooking for someone, but uh, maybe I'll work okay. towards cooking better um, along the way. But Krista, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to hear about what you guys are doing um, over there at the Learning Farm and Hoop International.